Well, my name is Daniel McIntosh. If you're visiting and you haven't met me, I am the executive pastor here. And you got a double order. You got me last week and you got me this week. When you reached into your pal's bag, you had the same hamburger twice. So hope you just enjoy that. Uh, and then next week, Spencer will be back up here. We are still in Corinthians. If you have your worship guide, it is there. We're going to be in chapter four this morning. Uh, we're just continuing through. And by way of introduction, how many of you remember your first uh, computer when computers came around? Now, some of you in the room, it's been your whole life, yes. But some of us remember the first computer I ever interacted with was an Apple IIe, and it was a very boring thing. It was huge, and it had this convex screen, and it had just a little green flashy thing, and you... And, it had no impact on me. I really didn't care about that thing. It had a five and a half inch floppy. It was just something teachers made you work on. But the real first computer that really got my attention was the Nintendo. Yeah, that's right. The original Nintendo. How many of you had the original Nintendo? It's about a third of us, I think. And then the rest of you are like, what are you talking about? Uh, now gaming systems, I mean, they're so elaborate. You play online, you're playing people in Hong Kong and down the street, and it's just this totally different thing. Back in the good old days, when I was a child, uh, original Nintendo had a simple controller, and you played your game, and it was amazing. It was amazing technology. That really was the first computer that had impact on me. That was a little processor in there, and it, that's when I discovered computers were cool. That was the beginning of the digital age for me. If you remember uh, your Nintendo, they were very simple devices. You had your games that you blew on, and if they didn't work, anybody do that? Because that really worked, and you stuck it in there. Uh, and they had two buttons. You guys remember what the buttons were on the front? One button was what? Power. What was the other one? Reset. Reset. Wasn't that a fun thing? Before that, there wasn't an idea of reset, to be honest, that really was when reset became like a cultural thing. You guys remember, it was right here. And reset was this, like almost this little grace to you playing the game. Because if you're going through on Super Mario Brothers and you get to level two and you've wiped out all your lives but one, and you're going for the gold, you're very tempted now to hit reset, right? You're going to restart that thing because you've gotten off track. And it was this amazing little grace that you could just hit reset, restart your thinking, restart the game, and get going again. Uh, by the way, kids, you couldn't save your game on Nintendo, so you either won or lost. There was no saving if you're curious about why that was so cool. So we had a reset button. This morning, Paul in Corinthians chapter 4, he is going to have the Corinthians reset their understanding. So, so far, as we have journeyed with Paul, as he's speaking to the Corinthian church, we have seen these great division, this, this great division that's popped up in the church, and we've seen Paul really go after their understanding of uh, why division is false thinking, what, where real wisdom comes from, who the real leader is, who it is Christ Jesus, and then Paul has gotten into uh, these ideas of these Corinthians being in their flesh and not living according to the Spirit and that affecting uh, their understanding and their actions and their understanding of their leaders. Well, now at the end of that conversation, last week Paul kind of gives this great statement that all things are yours, all your blessings from Christ are yours. Now he's going to reset 
their understanding of what a leader is. What is a spiritual leader in the church? What is a gospel-driven leader? They are playing the Nintendo, and they need a reset button. And Paul's going to do that. He's going to reset their thinking. There's a danger when I give that introduction. And here's the danger. Is that when I said Paul is going to talk to them about what a spiritual leader is, a church leader, that something in about maybe three quarters of your brains, this is not accusation, I have no idea. But there's a temptation for you to suddenly kind of set that aside Because when you hear that, you're like, well, I'm not a spiritual leader. I'm not a leader in the church. I'm not like a pastor, preacher, teacher. So, okay, that's good. I'm glad the scripture is going to reorient that for us, but that may or may not apply to me because we're going to be talking about spiritual leadership. That's not what I do. I do something totally different. Well, I would like to challenge that. And I'm not saying you're thinking that, but if you are. If you're tempted to think that, I would like to challenge that understanding. And so there's two pieces I'd like to present. And the first piece is this. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1. If you've got your Bible, just flip back there real quick. Let's see what Paul says. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So what did Paul say to the Corinthians Early on, we remember this from last week. He said, hey, you guys started as babies. That's great. We all start as babies. When you are spiritually born, you are an infant. He says, now Paul's writing this letter five to six years later to the Corinthians. And he spent a year and a half in Corinth. So these Corinthians that he's seen gospel transformation, he's seen them come to faith. It's been seven to eight years for some of these individuals. And Paul says, you guys, when I come to talk to you, His expectation is that they're growing up. He knows they started as babies. But he says, hey, it's time. You should now be out of your nappies, and you should be at the big boy and the big girl table. How many of you potty training your kids? You're like, get on your big boy pants, your big girl pants. Time to sit at the big table, right? We we have these development stages on purpose. Paul is saying that to the Corinthians spiritually. You guys are still infants. He says, you're still in your flesh. You're still acting like a needy little baby who hasn't matured, right? Babies, we love babies. This is not an instance. But babies in our understanding of what Paul's saying in the path to maturity. Don't stay a baby. Put on your big boy, big girl pants. Time to grow up. All right. And there's a second piece. All right, so I wanted you to go skip to the end of Corinthians chapter 4. Now look at verse 15 and 16. Paul says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. So Paul now looks at a second piece, uh, and this is all addressed to the Corinthians. He says, hey, now he's, there's some assumption that they're grown-up people. Babies aren't yet able to imitate. So as you're growing up, Corinthians, as you're maturing towards Christ, I want you to copy me because I am following Jesus. I am following Jesus. I am apostle. Jesus has been discipling me for many years. He's told me things that are good for you to know. I want you to follow me as I follow Jesus. And how Paul describes himself in that conversation is he says, I'm a father, I'm a parent. 
So if we're going to imitate Paul, if we're going to take his advice, if we were the Corinthians looking at him, then we understand we imitate him and what he has become is apparent to others. Okay, so this is the second piece. So if we put these two things together, you like that? I really like that little, thank you. Um, You start as a baby. (laughs) Here you are as an infant. God in the scripture is calling you to maturity. He says, grow up. Grow up in me. Don't stay in your nappy. Grow up in Christ. And then Paul is saying, as you're doing that, copy me as I am following Jesus. Everybody's following Jesus. I have become a parent. So if we put these two puzzle pieces together, we are called to grow up to become parents in Christ. Parents to others. So this idea of spiritual leadership So often when we hear it, when we hear, does that apply to me, we tend to just put it in this label of pastor or teacher or some official capacity person. But the scripture doesn't really see it that way. The scripture is calling all of us in Jesus to grow up. Now, it may be that you're not, quote, the leader in the room. That may not be your title, But the scripture has called you to grow up to become a spiritual mature person in Christ. And so therefore, maybe if you're not the leader, you're still called to be spiritually leading. We don't get out of this. You can't stay a baby crawling around on the floor. That's just not from the scripture. God's calling you to grow. And just to give us a few more scriptures to support this, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. So Ephesians 4. The underlines are mine. Unless you underline it in your Bible, then they'll be yours. Uh, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Colossians 1.28. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature. Hebrews 5. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Hebrews 6, 1. So if the temptation for you is to never see yourself as someone who should be a spiritual leader, who should grow up, then my word to you is just from the scripture that the scripture doesn't really give you that permission. If you're in Christ, the scripture calls you to mature to grow up into Jesus, which does put you in a place of spiritual leadership. Even if you're not the head leader, there is a place God has called you to in some relationship to someone that is spiritual leadership. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. That's where we're at. We're hitting this reset button on what it means to be a a spirit-filled leader, to be someone who's going after this. And uh, 1 Corinthians 4 Uh, This very first line, Paul says, he says, this is how, this is verse one of chapter four. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So we're just going to borrow that language this morning. We're just going to borrow that servant language. This servant in Greek is this person who has uh, the uh, trust of the master, who's in sync with the master. And this steward is this idea of someone who has full capacity, full access to everything of the owner, and they take the owner's goods and they go and multiply them, use them well 
Think of Joseph in Egypt, this type of person who's given responsibility, who's given access so that they can go and do good things with what they've been given. This is how Paul says, I want you to regard us. I want you to think about us as servants of Christ. So here's the first. I want us to read one through four and then come back to this point. Uh, This is how I want you to regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. First point I believe Paul's making to us is servant leaders recognize Jesus does their final review. Servant leaders recognize Jesus does their final review. It might be when we read this for the first time that Paul is coming off like a little independent or a little roguish. Like, listen, I don't answer to anyone. I just answer to Jesus. But let's not overread what Paul is saying, and especially in the full light of Scripture. Paul is talking about a very uh, deep and heart view of judgment. And we need to remember something that the Corinthians, we get this little snippets of it in Paul's response to them. Paul is being accused of some pretty not nice things from some group in Corinth. He's being accused of not being a real apostle. He's being accused of not having power. He's being accused of not being a good speaker and and not really being a real true apostle, not really bringing the gospel. Paul gets all kinds of these kind of bad, nasty accusations from some group. And he says, hey, you guys need to remember my evaluation, my ultimate evaluation comes from Jesus. How many of you at work, you have to do evals? You get evaluated or you evaluate other people. Right, we do these every year. It's just a normal thing, normal part of work uh, life. So let's remember something. Paul is not advocating that he has no human authority. When we look in the rest of Scripture in Acts 15, there is an issue that Paul has come upon from his missionary journeys, and that is there's circumcised Jews who are coming to faith. There are uncircumcised Gentiles. And these two groups are trying to figure out how to worship side by side. And it's a schism. And the way Paul deals with this, when he is in the middle of this schism, is he doesn't go rogue and make some uh, massive decision on his own. He goes to the Jerusalem council. And there is a group of apostles and other people who are following Jesus who make this decision together, being led by the Spirit. And then Paul takes this decision from this council of people, and he takes it back to the churches. So don't overread Paul. He's not even advocating he has no human authority. Scripture bears out that he does. Uh, The second thing is he's not advocating for no human accountability. Let's not read into this and go, I'm not accountable to anyone. I can just follow Paul, and I just answer to Jesus. Look at what Paul says about Peter in Galatians chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. But in this instance, this is where Peter is caught eating, not eating with the Greeks, the Greek converts. He's just eating with the Jews. 
and Paul gets to call him out. Okay, interesting thing, seeing these two talk to each other, but they're being accountable, right? Paul's not saying that there is no human accountability. He even does it, demonstrates it for us in Galatians. But what is Paul saying? So this is what he's not saying. What is he saying in this first section of chapter 4? That no human authority or accountability structure has the ability to open up your heart and truly see inside like God does. Servant leaders recognize Jesus does their final review. It is possible you may trick human authority. You might trick your accountability structure for a while. But servant leaders recognize the person they are serving is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is not fooled at your review time. He knows what's going on in there. And it's he's the one that we ultimately answer to. You're serving You're fulfilling your God-given calling because Jesus has called you to it. You need structures. You need accountability because we're all sinners, but you recognize that you serve Christ. All right, let's move on. Uh, Let's look verse 6 through 7. Read along with me. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? I believe Paul's second point he wants us to see is this servant leaders recognize boundaries are for our good. Servant leaders recognize boundaries are for our good. See how Paul says that. He says, brothers, uh, I want you to learn not to go beyond what is written. More than likely, Paul is referring to the Old Testament scripture that he has brought, that he's preached from, that he's brought to explain Christ to the Corinthians. There are some commentators that say, well, he doesn't exactly say that. If you research it, there's a little bit of debate, but it's a pretty safe assumption. When he's saying, don't go beyond what is written, he's referring to God's word. And he does it multiple times in his letters. And he says it, and so leaders see the need for boundaries, and they see therefore are good, because look at how Paul uh, says what is written does to the Corinthian pride. He says God's word is toxic to your human pride. Don't go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Don't be like those blowfish. Y'all ever caught those on the beach and you catch them and you pull them out of the water and they just like do this and they're suddenly like three times their size? Don't puff yourself up full of air. (laughs) Don't assume things of yourself that are really not scriptural. And this is the beauty of the Bible. John Jansen and I are reading through Genesis right now, and he and I are laughing about the fact that stories of reality of Abraham and his family that are happening 4,000 years ago or greater, and people's motivations and the things that drive people and push them are the exact same things that are pushing and driving us. When we get into the Scripture and we digest it, and we let it transform us, if there is pride in us, it will be toxic to it. You guys ever spray stuff on your weeds in the driveway? Right? 
what's that stuff called? Um, Roundup. It's got some lawsuits going on right now, so we'll just mark this from the podcast. But you know, you you spray Roundup on the weed, right? And what happens? Is it dead immediately? No. You go back the next day. What's it doing? Starting to wilt down, gets a little yellow, and you go back the next day, and what happens? It's finally turning brown. That's really how the scripture works in us against our pride. The more we read it, the more we digest it, the more and more it kills our human pride, and it makes much of Jesus. God's word nourishes God dependency. Paul says to the Corinthians, as they're getting puffed up like blowfish, thinking things of themselves that they shouldn't. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? And that's a great question for all of us. What did you, what do you have that you did not receive that somehow out of your environment or from God in his spiritual blessing, what do you really have that you did not receive? If you're massively intelligent, did you put that DNA in your body? Did you give yourself that brain? If you're amazingly charismatic, did you set yourself up to be that way? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? God's word is toxic to our pride. And God's word makes us be God-dependent. It nourishes God-dependency. Okay, let's move on. we got to get through the whole chapter. Here we go. Uh, starting in verse 8, read along with me. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Next point is this. Servant leaders evaluate success by different standards. Servant leaders evaluate success by different standards. How many of you guys uh, are fans of sarcasm? And you use sarcasm in yes. <laughs> Some of the teens went, yes, it's my daily form of communication. Uh, when Michelle and I got married, we both enjoy sarcasm, but she enjoys it at a slightly different level than I do. And it took us some years to understand when the other one was communicating in love or if I should be hurt. Uh, it's probably more my sensitivity than it was my wife's problem. Um, but Paul, in this moment... He pulls out this rhetorical device of sarcasm. Isn't it interesting? In the scripture, there is sarcasm. All those exclamation points. Did you see them when we read through? Already you have all you want. Can't you just hear Paul saying it? The Corinthians are struggling with pride. 
They're struggling with spiritual uh, misunderstanding. Remember, Paul is hitting the reset button on their understanding of what it means to be spiritually mature, to be a spiritual leader. They have gotten way off track, and he uses sarcasm to just highlight how big their pride has gone, how much of a puffer fish they've become. And if you think about the Corinthians, if you go back to uh, chapter 1 and verse 26, Paul says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world to bring to nothing things that are. The Corinthians somehow have become so enmeshed in their pride, they're even self-delusional to a sense. They're trying to take on this false identity, this weird view of this spiritual uh, high horses, and Paul, in his sarcasm, is going to knock them off. But let's look at how Paul describes these two views of what it looks like to be a successful Christian leader. So remember, the Corinthians have had this issue of dividing. I follow so-and-so. I follow so-and-so. Thinking potentially their competitive nature has brought this out. They want to follow the successful person, the one who's on top. The Corinthians' view of leadership success, uh, there are riches. There's authority. Oh, you, you reign and rule. You're like a king. There's ruling. There's strength. There's honor. There's wisdom. And by the way, there's technically nothing wrong with lots of these descriptors. But this is how the Corinthians are viewing spiritual leadership success. You've got to have these tick marks. And once you have these tick marks, man, now you're leading. Now you're doing well. But let's look at Paul's reality of leadership success. How does he describe he and his fellow apostles? He says, we're last of all. We're spectacles. Fools for Christ's sake. He says, I think, uh, I believe it's in verse 10, or excuse me, verse 9. For I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world. Paul's imagery, he's probably pulling up this imagery when you see this victorious army and they're marching back into town. They're going to lead with their commanders and their most powerful warriors. And then you'll have, you know, I guess the bowmen and the spearmen and whoever's last, the kid playing the drums. But then behind them, you get this little ragtag group of defeated people that get pulled behind. And they're the prisoners of war. And you would recognize that these individuals, their next step is the gallows or death or whatever is going to happen to them. It's not going to be nice. Paul's using this pretty drastic illustration to say that as he is following Christ, Christ has put him in situations that have not looked like Worldly success, reviled, persecuted, slander, scum, refuse of all things. The danger for us, if we don't have our understanding of uh, a servant leader corrected by Scripture, is that when these things aren't happening, we will assume success is not ours, that we have failed. If these things aren't on the resume, then maybe I'm doing it wrong. And here's Paul's correction for us. If God has called you into a ministry, he's the one that determines success. 
It's his outcome. It's not your ability to check off these tick marks. He may give you some of these things, and he may give you some of these things. He's the one that determines what success is. Not us. We don't get to create the standard. Most of us will not have all of Paul's resume. Paul was an itinerant preacher. He traveled from town to town in a rough time in history. He had to face bandits and robbers and shipwrecks and all kinds of really hard things. He preached in essentially closed places all the time. He went in and said things that made lots of people mad, and they beat him and stoned him. Most of us will not have that type of thing on our resume. But we may have some of that. How will we evaluate our success? Servant leaders uh, have a different standard of success. Okay, moving forward, verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed. You can tell Paul and his sarcasm. He knows it was rough. He is their parent in the faith, so he's going to come back now with love. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you have not many fathers. You do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then to be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. As I teach them everywhere in every church, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Can you just hear Paul's words like a dad talking to his kids? He steps out of this rhetoric of sarcasm, and now he steps into this very parental role. Corinthians, I love you. I am calling out your pride because it is good for you. And then he goes into this place. He says, you have countless guides, but not many fathers. I became your father. And then he says this really famous line, uh, be imitators of me. And I think if all of us are honest, if Paul has told us to follow him, to imitate him, and he's saying, this is what you do, do what I do as we grow up, this idea of, Telling someone else to imitate us is very intimidating. And I think what happens in that is that we get so caught up in our failures or the ways that we are not, quote-unquote, being successful, that we forget what Paul is saying. He says, I send Timothy to talk to you of my ways in the Lord. We're not having people imitate us. We're having people imitate us as we follow Jesus. Ultimately, we want them to follow Jesus. And if we've had time and practice and years doing that, and we're maturing, then we have things to offer to them, those that are younger than us. And so we need to clear our heads thinking that this is something about my own pride or my own ability. It's really you're helping someone else follow Christ as you have followed Christ. 
um, servant leaders live out Christ's life for others to imitate. Just really straightforward. And I love a quote I found. Uh, this is Craig Bloomberg. He's a very happy-looking fellow. I thought we should see his face this morning. Uh, this is his commentary. This is something we've been studying uh, as we've gone through this. Here's what Craig Bloomberg says. He says, progress along the road to sanctification demands that new believers have consistent, positive, mature Christian models to imitate in all aspects of daily life. Think about this. If we are called to be spiritual parents to others, think about how you act as a parent. Your kids imitate you in all kinds of ways. My little boys love it when we go work because they want to pick up all the tools that I pick up. And they're getting there, but they can't pick up the chainsaw yet, right? Like There's timing and there's pacing. Your children imitate you. It's no different spiritually. And children need access to you to know what you do so they can repeat it. But here's the kicker for us. This in turn implies that more mature Christians must make themselves accessible and transparent to younger believers around them. We did a survey, I think it was back last January, and we asked this question, how long have you been a believer? How long have you been following Christ? What's your track record? Where are you at? And the results of that survey uh, really told us that a lot of us in our body have been following Jesus for many years. So if we are being obedient and we are following this phase of leaving infancy, maturing in Christ, pursuing Him, then this verse is for a lot of us. It is for us. Now, if you're here and you're a brand new baby Christian, the day will come. And if you're here and you're still stuck in the baby phase after many, many years, let us help you get out. <laughs> Don't stay in the baby phase. Scripture is calling you forward. So this idea of being a servant leader, the question is, how do we do that? How do we do that type of life that Paul is demonstrating? And honestly, we can't. Here's the answer. We cannot be that. You will not achieve that in your strength. You will not have a list of things that measure your success that look like things you wouldn't have chose, but Jesus is choosing them for you. You won't do that on your own. And by the way, Paul did not do that on his own. It was an impossible task, except if we look back in verse 15, it's an impossible task made possible through the gospel. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Lots of us actually looked on my shelf uh, this morning. How many of you have your leadership books that you've got? Good to great. Jim Collins, anybody? There we go. Lencioni. How many of you got that one? Yes. I th probably all of us that are in some type of career or even homeschooling or teaching or something, we go to the leadership conference. And they teach us how to do our thing well, how to be good managers, how to be good stewards, how to do this well. And by the way, those are great trainings. I have the books on my shelf because they're, they're helpful. They're needed. 
But we need to remember there is no conference, there is no book that is going to bring us into servant leadership. That is impossible. That only comes through the gospel. We do not arrive there any other way. It's just impossible. But there is some really good news. There is a great result when we follow Christ in this. When we imitate Paul, we follow Christ, we become servant leaders. Verse 20, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Servant leaders have access to the power of God because they come through the gospel. Servant leaders have access to the power of God because they come through the gospel. If you want to see transformation, if you're wanting to say, yes, Christ, I want to follow you because I want to influence and I want to see transformation in myself and others, then to access that power, we must come through the gospel. When Paul says this power of God, turn back to Corinthians chapter 1. This is how Paul framed up the power of God for us in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul has already previously equated for us that the power of God is connected to the cross of Christ. We can't get to that power unless we first follow the word of the cross. But that is open to us. That is available to us. The scripture is calling us to mature, and if the scripture calls us to mature, then it will make the way available to us. So this morning, before we take our time uh, to partake of communion together, Um, Let's just take a few minutes and just think about how you have been uh, understanding leadership, how you've understood servant leadership, what you thought it meant to be mature in Christ. Is there any place in you that uh, God is calling you to reset, to reset your understanding, to let these words reset how we pursue success, what we understand success to be? As a culture, man, we are surrounded by a constant stream of marketing and seminars, and now we have influencers, and they tell us, I hold the secret. If you do the thing I do, if you use the product I do, you will be the successful, you'll be in front, you'll be the leader. The pathways they offer us do not access the power of God, and they are not the way of the cross. Here's an apostle, someone who had this amazing, direct, immediate relationship with Christ. Revelations that were, I mean, out of this world. And he's reminding us, this is what my success has looked like, but it's been all worth it because I am pursuing the king. I am pursuing Jesus. And that's where power for transformation comes from. Uh, Let's pray. Lord, we... um, We are your people. We don't belong to anyone else. And my goodness, we need you.